0: This is Our American Stories, and today we have something very special for you. Our grand executive producer, Most Up High, brings us an hour of radio so compelling, so riveting, so challenging to the status quo, the seas may burn and nations may fall due to the sheer complexity and profundity of this topic. Here's Jesse. Listen,
1: do you mind if I offer you a suggestion?
2: Oh, I'll take any advice I can get, Dad.
3: There is a famous old story about a man who had to get up and speak in front of some very important people, and he was petrified. I'm with him. Yeah, but a friend gave me some advice. He says, Look, when you get up in front of those VIPs, you picture them sitting there in their underwear.
4: In their underwear? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mike, is that true?
3: Sure it is. Worked like a charm, too, because it made him realize that his audience was only human. I mean, y- you can't be very frightening in your
5: underwear.
6: <laughs> oh, I don't know. You should see me in mine. <laughs>
7: underwear. We all wear them. Most of us do, anyway. Uh, boxers, briefs, bras, drawers, britches, knickers, long johns, lingerie, brassieres, bloomers, bras, corsets, and panties. Yes, I said it. Panties. What exactly
8: was the undergarment just referred to? panties, your honor. Do you expect this subject to come up again? Yes, sir.
7: Of course, the story goes back at least as far as Adam and Eve. You know the story. Hanging out naked in the garden when a talking snake convinced them to eat forbidden fruit that made the otherwise happy couple feel painfully self-aware of their exposed reproductive organs. Enter the loincloth made of fig leaves. The first documented pair of underwear. I think. This is by no means a scientific study of underwear, and I'm prone to embellishments, so just pay attention and enjoy the ride. Okay. Eventually, people graduated from the fig leaf to a cloth loincloth made of wool or linen. Now, silk loincloths were for the wealthy, but people who wore them were constantly mocked by the working-class wool and linen loincloth crowds. Try saying that ten times fast. By the Middle Ages, the loincloth had evolved into a baggy-fitting trouser-like garment that I won't try to pronounce. Fast forward a few hundred years with the invention of the cotton gin during the second half of the 18th century, and cotton fabrics were everywhere. By the early 20th century, the mass-produced undergarment industry was booming, and underwear advertising first made an appearance in the 1910s. From the
9: battlefront to the fashion front, and there's no smokescreen here. It's a West End show, sheer nylon underwear, new-style elasticated girdles and brassiers, everything to delight the eyes of women. Not that the men were exactly bored. Here's a nightdress with a difference. Or what about this? Its title is gorgeous, and we can't think of a better. Overskirts to be worn with panties and girdles were a feature of the show.
7: In the 1920s, manufacturers shifted emphasis from durability to comfort.
9: Rich, heavy satin is the material in these Oriental-style pajamas, completing a short glimpse of a pageant we could have watched for hours.
7: But modern man's underwear was largely an invention of the 1930s. On January 19th of 1935, Cooper's Inc. sold the world's first briefs in Chicago. The company dubbed the design The Jockey. Since it offered a degree of support that had previously only been available from the jockstrap. Jockey briefs proved so popular that over 30,000 pairs were sold within three months of their introduction. And thus, modern underwear as we know them today was born. Of course, there's a little more to the history of underwear than that, but I'm not here to bore you with those details. What about the underwear of the future? The market has certainly come a long way from the World's Fair in 1930.
2: I've never seen purple underwear before, Calvin. Calvin, why, why do you keep calling me Calvin?
7: Well, that is your name, isn't it? Calvin Klein? In fact... Sales of underwear can be seen as an economic indicator.
6: It may be silly, but former Federal Reserve Chief Alan Greenspan says underwear sales are a great economic indicator. Underwear sales are usually stable because men need them. But during really tough times, men may wait longer to buy those Tabasco trousers. When Anna Garcia's husband lost his job, new briefs went bye-bye. He would
10: rather buy a pair of jeans or a new pair of shoes than is underwear because that's the last thing I guess
7: you can see. (laughs) Underwear alone in the US is a 15 billion plus market per year in terms of revenue. You see, the future of underwear is now. At no other point in the history of the universe have we had access to such a bountiful and diverse supply of the world's finest undergarments. New underwear startup companies like MeUndies, Tommy Johns, and Mark Weldon are booming. Joel Primus is the president and founder of Naked Brands Underwear.
11: Um, I was filming a documentary through so, Central and South America and I came across a pair of underwear in Peru and you know, the fabrics were incredible and it was something that I'd never experienced before. At, at that moment, I didn't think I'm going to start an underwear company, but for some reason, and I call it a miracle or act I don't know, but um, I put... I bought five pairs of this underwear and I just put them in the bottom of my backpack and I carried them around for a couple months as I was traveling. And even when I got home, I didn't do anything with them. But I was so determined to create, to make something of my life that I had heard some success stories about some some fashion startups and and all of a sudden that thought of the underwear popped in my mind. I was like... That's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make an underwear company.
7: Yes, underwear. Changing economies and changing lives. When we come back, the Great American Underwear Hour returns with the answer to the age-old question, boxers or briefs? Plus, more on the word panties and why so many people cringe when they hear it. Also, we'll hear from the founder of Spanx, who turned $5,000 into a billion-dollar underwear empire. All that and so much more coming up right here on Our American Underwear. Uh, Our American Stories.
4: Just see what's going on here?
7: No boxers, no jockeys. Oh. The only thing between him and us is a thin layer of gabardine.
12: Kramer, say it isn't so. It'd be so. I'm out there, Jerry, and I'm all.
0: This is Our American Stories, and before we return to the Great American Underwear Hour with Jesse, we first wanted to vamp a little bit because in this segment, we have what we call a hard out. You see, the length of the segment you're listening to right now is 11 minutes in length, but our set piece that you're about to hear is only 10 minutes and 2 seconds long, which means I've got to fill 58 seconds so that the song that gets played at the end of the segment ends at exactly 11 minutes we're only about 30 seconds into this segment right now which means we have about 28 seconds more to fill this is great radio don't you think you're really going to enjoy the rest of this special on underwear the entire hour long underwear that's right is it time yet
4: and a lot of
7: women
10: ask well what do men want from their underwear what is important to us From, and I'll tell you what we want we want the same thing from our underwear that we want from the women in our lives we want a little bit of support and we want a little bit of freedom yeah. that makes sense that's
13: all it is that
4: makes sense yeah.
7: welcome back to the great American underwear hour did you know that by the year 2021 Amazon is projected to generate 62 billion dollars in annual apparel sales of course you didn't according to oneclickretail.com the 2016 top performing apparel items on Amazon.com were all in the underwear category. Here's the top five sellers. Haynes Men's 10-pack of Crew socks at number five with 850K in sales. Haynes Men's top 10 pack of ankle socks at number four with 900,000 dollars in sales. Haynes five-pack of boxer briefs at number three at $1.10 million. Dickey's six-pack of Tri-Tech Crew Socks at $1.15 million. And in at number one at the top five Amazon.com 2016 top performing apparel items is. Ah! A drum roll, please. Uh, can I get a drum roll, please? And in number one on the top five of Amazon.com's 2016 top performing apparel items is Haynes Men's 10 pack Ultimate Cruise Socks with $1.25 million in sales. Men's underwear has been the biggest area of growth for the online retailer in recent years as Amazon is expected to surpass Macy's, becoming the biggest apparel seller in the United States in 2017. Spanx are another brand of underwear that have risen to monumental popularity in relatively recent underwear history. Founded in Atlanta, Georgia, Spanx specializes in underwear intended to make people look thinner.
6: I'm not fat. And big band.
7: Sarah Blakely is the founder of Spanx. She started this billion-dollar undergarment Goliath of a company with just five thousand dollars in savings. Sarah would find her inspiration in a place that she holds dear.
14: Actually, my own butt was the inspiration because as a woman, I couldn't figure out what to wear under my white pants. So I, I don't know if Warren's had the same problem, but um, a lot of women do. And I filled I was a frustrated consumer that had no business background and no retail experience. But I knew there was a void between the traditional underwear and the heavy duty girdle. And so that's sort of the moment that happened was so that I could wear these pants that hung in my clothes closet
7: so Sarah did what anyone in a similar situation might she took out the scissors and went to town
14: I just cut the feet out of control top pantyhose one day and realized that that worked better than anything I could buy on the market as far as smoothing and getting rid of any blemishes or panty lines but they rolled up my leg all night under my pants so I Went home that night and said, I've got to figure out a way to comfortably keep this just below the knee.
7: Necessity is the mother of invention, but capital is the father of production. Sarah Blakely worked odd jobs to get the cash she needed to start the company.
14: I sold fax machines for seven years. It was basically uh, my only job pretty much out of college. And, you know, was cold calling for a living. I got kicked out of businesses all the time for years. And I, you know, did that until I cut the feet out of pantyhose. So I had $5,000 set aside in my savings. And when I came up with the idea, I just went on the Internet and started researching hosiery or shapewear where does this stuff get made how does it get made and that started my journey of you know spanks. i i found out that most of it was made in north carolina so lucky for me it was close enough to where i was living i could drive there on weekends and take vacation days and go during the week
7: after success sarah's attention turned to growth and teamwork
14: the first two years, I was very involved in every aspect of selling it, marketing it, you know, trying to wear all the hats because I couldn't afford to, to hire anyone. And then I always say that when I could afford to hire my weaknesses or mm-hmm. the things I didn't enjoy as much, which are usually the same thing I did. And I hired a fabulous CEO and she's been with me for 11 years. And so that was a very critical moment for Spanx to recognize, okay, this is where I can, we're, here, these are my gifts for the company and here I need to um, find someone who can really manage the day to day and the operations, and we've been a good team.
7: So, our friend Sarah here lived happily ever after with her billion dollar underwear empire. Here's her advice on being successful.
14: What you don't know can become your greatest asset if you will let it, if you have the confidence to say, you know, I'm going to do it anyway, even though I haven't been taught or, you know, somebody hasn't shown me the way. And I, I actually talk about that a lot now within Spanx. I always bring it up with the team and say, if nobody showed you how to do your job, how would you be doing it? Just take a minute, go to that mental space because nine times out of 10, you'll come up with a better way. But we're all on autopilot. A lot of times we're just doing something the way someone else showed us. So the fact that I'd never taken a business class, I had no training. I didn't know how retail worked. I think I was probably not as intimidated as I maybe should have been had I known all the research I mean I went into an industry that had been on a 15-year decline Mm -hmm. I didn't know that you know within um, a few weeks after I made my invention I called Neiman Marcus on the phone I didn't know any other way and then I ran into all of these people that have their own products and they would say how in the world did you get into Neiman Marcus Mm And I would say, I called them. (laughs) And they would literally look at me like, what are you talking? And I said, why? What do you do? And they go, well, we've been going to trade shows for six years, setting up a booth and hoping the Neiman's buyer comes by and that we get our shot. And I didn't even know there were trade shows. So that example throughout the whole process of Spanx just worked in favor in a lot of of cases.
7: That is truly an inspiring story. So inspiring that I forgot what we were talking about. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. Underwear.
14: You know what makes me feel
5: good? Curling up with a good book. Pumping iron. Maybe later. And these little numbers. Yeah. Fruit of the Loom panties. Sure they're lacy and pretty. And show a lot of leg. But the way they feel. That smooth, soft Fruit of the Loom cotton moves with me. Hugging every little curve. And the not
6: so little curves.
14: Now save up to $20 on select Fruit of the Loom products.
7: Buck Weimer is the CEO of Undertech Corporation.
15: My name and my title is uh, Buck Weimer, and I am the CEO of Undertech Corporation, and we manufacture Underease underwear for flatulence.
7: Yet again, necessity being the mother of invention, it's also the mother of fun little stories like this.
15: So I was a a psychotherapist at a hospital where I worked, and I was recently working with some coal miners who um, went through a disaster, but they were wearing gas masks. So I figured well, if they could filter out the toxic gases, I must be able to get a filter that could filter out the bad smells of, of flatulence.
7: So Buck went to work on proof of concept with his odor-proof underwear.
15: One night after some a very large Thanksgiving meal and all the gas was coming up and I was looking for a solution on how to solve this. So I noticed that all the gas was coming up towards the nostrils rather than out the side and the bottom, which is where the blankets hang over. So I thought, well, if I could direct the gas in a pair of underwear to go through maybe some sort of filtration process, that that would work.
7: Buck went on to obtain a patent on his odor-proof underwear and even appeared on the TV show Shark Tank, though none of the sharks actually invested in the product. I have absolutely no context for bringing you this story other than the fact that we're talking about underwear, and Buck makes underwear that masks the smell of your farts. When we come back, boxers are briefs, and why is the word panties so terrible? Plus, what does your underwear say about your health? We'll hear from top experts on what to look for. All that and so much more coming up on the Great American Underwear Hour. And here is the one and only singer-songwriter-comedian Rodney Carrington with the underwear song. This is Our American Stories.
12: I went to the neighbor's yard to to see what I could find. I found me an old pair of underwear hanging on a clothesline. Ask an old woman in a long chair how much you want for them drawers She said, if you're willing to touch them, them nasty things are yours They've been hanging out in the backyard since 1985 They were my husband's favorite pair when he was still alive They're stiff as a board in milled if you wash them they'll be fine they got skid marks up to the waistband but they ain't no worse than mine. I hope the boys at BVD can see me wearing these. They just might find it in their heart to give me a pair for free. Yay, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, they are my favorite underwear. Wear them every day. I use tape from Scotch to repair the crotch but I get blisters that way.
0: This is our American Stories, and we continue now with our special on the life of underwear. Here's Jesse.
12: A shotgun willie sits around in his underwear, fighting on a bullet, and pulling out all of his hair. A shotgun willie's got all of his family there. Welcome back to
7: the Great American Underwear Hour. Perhaps one of the most hated words in the English language is the word panties. I don't know why. In fact, I'm so uncomfortable saying the word, I'm just going to turn it over to YouTube blogger The Nerd Bird to explain it for us.
11: I hate panties. Not the garment. The word. And it's not just me. I've noticed that women the world over dislike this word. I think the main reason why people don't really like it is because it conjures up images of being a little girl because when I was a child my mom referred to my underwear as panties as in don't forget to change your panties and that's why when I see it or hear it it makes me go oh gross it's in TV shows and movies it's in songs it's in books oh it's in a lot of books the most frustrating part is that there are way better words out there to use instead of panties like underwear or undies which is my personal favorite knickers underoos I would like to propose that the word panties be taken out of the dictionary altogether. If we could just cease using it from here on forward, it would make me and a lot of other women pretty damn happy.
7: I think we can all agree to that. While we might not have the ability to strike the word panties from the American lexicon, at least we can strike the word from the rest of this show. The Great American Underwear Hour will henceforth abolish the term panties for the remainder of the broadcast. Starting now. Now that we've got that out of the way, it's time to answer that age-old question of boxers or briefs. Now, before we give you the answer, let's see what people on the street have to say about this debate when the guys at UnderwearExpert.com asked that very same question in the streets of Hollywood.
10: Hey, man, what's your name? Eli. Eli, how old are you? I'm 18. Al Underwood. Al Underwood. How old are you, Al? Uh, 52. 52? Chris. Chris, and how old are you, Chris? Uh, 28. John. John, all right, what do you do, John? Teacher. Your teacher, what do you teach? Uh, P. I'm a uh, marketing consultant for the art of shaving. I work at Pizza Hut. What are you wearing today, boxers or briefs? Boxers or briefs? Boxers or briefs? Boxer briefs. Why? Uh, they, uh, they keep everything cool, separated, you know, snug. Boxer briefs. Boxer briefs, why? because it's still kind of uh, long and it's not embarrassing like tidy whities but it keeps everything secure. Boxer briefs. Boxer briefs? Yeah. Why is that? Because they're snug, they look great when you take them off, then girls go, Oh. I got on some briefs. You got some briefs? Yeah, the boxers kind of let everything swing too freely. Here it comes. <laughs> Boom. Boxer nice. briefs. Yeah. Boxer briefs. Alright, what brand is that? Rocketwear? Uh, I think so. Is that your favorite brand? No, no, no. Favorite brand Calvin Klein. Hanes. Hanes. Yeah. yeah. Go to. I like all my undergarments. I don't spend any money on. You got a favorite brand? Uh, Ruffler. Yeah. Ruffalo. You know, keep keep my guys cool. You know, and uh, just really freely flowing. They're uh, like, very comfortable. Some girls see a difference. I really don't care. Uh, Jungle green is my favorite. Yeah. Excellent. What does that say about you? I don't know. I'm a wild man. <laughs> I like it clean and neat. It's perfect.
7: So, what do men prefer in terms of sales? Boxers or briefs? Well, it turns out the answer is both. The boxer brief hybrid is the dominant form of men's underwear with a 40% market share. Jonathan Shokrian is founder of e commerce underwear company Me Undies, and he just might have one of the most interesting jobs on the planet. Designing and marketing underwear, he also takes pictures of women in their panties. Someone said panties. I know that I said we wouldn't use the word panties anymore in the broadcast, but I lied. Sorry. Someone said panties. In 2011, at the age of 25, with $400,000 of startup funds raised from friends, family, and angel investors the Me Undies founder
10: set out on a mission to disrupt the way underwear is manufactured and purchased. I'm Jonathan Shokrian, and I'm the founder and CEO of MeUndies.com. When I was 18, I moved to Dallas for six years to go to school and work for my father's real estate company. First, I was just really doing management, and that literally had to do with anyone calling and complaining about a roof leak to, you know, a backed up sink or, you know, all the problems that you deal with in that regard. But then eventually, I learned a great deal on how to manage people, how to like keep costs low and run a company. While I was in high school, I had a cousin who would sell electronics wholesale. I came up with the idea of taking his product and listing it on eBay. We were one of the top 200 sellers on eBay. Once he figured out kind of how to run it. He quickly kind of got rid of me. So it was a really early lesson on like how business works and the good and the bad that comes with it.
7: Jonathan Shokrian and his company Me Undies is currently selling around five million units per year. So far we've heard from several successful underwear entrepreneurs in this hour-long celebration of undergarments known as the Great American Underwear Hour. Lawrence Ferlinghetti is an American poet, best known for a Coney Island of the Mind from 1958. A collection of poems that has been translated into nine languages with sales of more than 1 million copies and when would be a better time than now than to hear his poem about underwear?
6: underwear yeah underwear that's a serious subject underwear I haven't I, I uh, didn't get much sleep last night thinking about underwear Have you ever stopped to consider underwear in the abstract When you really dig into it, some shocking problems are raised. Underwear is something we all have to deal with. Everyone wears some kind of underwear. Even Indians wear underwear. Even Cubans wear underwear. The Pope wears underwear, I hope. The governor of Louisiana wears underwear. I saw him on TV. He must have had tight underwear. He squirmed a lot. Underwear can really get you in a bind. You've seen the underwear ads for men and women, so alike but so different. Women's underwear holds things up. Men's underwear holds things down. (laughs) Or vice versa. Underwear is one thing men and women have in common. Underwear is all we have between us in the end. You've seen the three-color pictures with crotches and circles to show the areas of extra strength and three-way stretch promising full freedom of action? Don't be deceived. It's all based on a two-party system, which doesn't allow much freedom of choice the way things are set up. America in its underwear struggles through the night. Underwear controls everything in the end. Take foundation garments, for instance. They're really fascist forms of underground government, making people believe something but the truth. Telling you what you can or can't do. Did you ever try to get around a girdle? Perhaps nonviolent action is the only answer. Did Gandhi wear a girdle? Did Lady Macbeth wear a girdle? Was that why Macbeth murdered sleep? And that spot she was always rubbing. Modern Anglo-Saxon ladies must have huge gill complexes. Always washing and washing and washing out damn spot. Underwear with spots, very suspicious. (laughs) Underwear with bulges, very shocking. Underwear on clothesline, a great flag of freedom. Someone has escaped his underwear, maybe naked somewhere. Help! (laughs) But don't worry, everybody's still hung up in it. There won't be no real revolution. And poetry's still the underwear of the soul. And underwear still covering a multitude of faults in the geological sense. Strange sedimentary stones, inscrutable cracks. If I were you, I'd keep aside an oversized pair of winter underwear. Do not go naked into that good night. And in the meantime, keep calm and warm and dry. No use stirring yourselves up prematurely over nothing. Move forward with dignity and invest. Don't get emotional, and death shall have no dominion. There's plenty of time, my darling. Are we not still young and easy? Don't shout.
7: And you're listening to the Great American Underwear Hour on Our American Stories. When we come back, every year people in New York City strip down to their underwear to ride the subway... All that and so much more coming up as we conclude the Great American Underwear Hour. This is Our American Stories.
2: square she's standing in her underwear looking down from a hotel room and that will be coming soon.
0: Oh, this is our American God. stories and leave it to Jesse to find Tom Petty saying the word underwear. And now back to our executive underwear master. Jesse Edwards.
7: If you're still listening to this broadcast, I'm sure you didn't wake up this morning expecting to know this much about underwear. And if you're just joining us, welcome to the Great American Underwear Hour, brought to you by Our American Stories. We've heard from one rich young American entrepreneur after another who went out and made millions by entering online subscription-based craft underwear sales. Hipster millennials sitting around air-conditioned offices from sea to shining sea, cashing in and chopping away massive returns from big underwear like Victoria's Secret, Hanes, and Fruit of the Loom. Out with the old and in with the new. Right? Well, not quite. You see, the world's first recyclable underwear is a new startup called ReUndies.
10: How it works is quite simple. Order a pair of the world's most comfortable underwear, and they'll arrive faster than you can say sustainability. Wear them, live in them, be yourself in them. Then, when you're ready for a new pair, just stick them back in the package, slap that prepaid shipping label on it, and send them on back. You don't even have to wash them. That's right, Billy. And in fact, your package is arriving right now. I should
7: probably point out that this underwear startup is completely fictitious. But that should tell you something. There are so many underwear startup companies in America right now that these people spend weeks of their time making this fake startup campaign ad. There are currently over 250 underwear startup company projects just on kickstarter.com alone. Welcome to the golden age of underwear. But not all underwear is created equal. Not all underwear is fun and games. A lot of intriguing details you're about to hear that might have come out during a trial but didn't because the underwear bomber pleaded guilty. These agents say they don't often get a chance to interrogate a suicide bomber, especially one like this. Yes, we live in a day and age where underwear can take down an airplane. And they can even take down a congressman. Like former congressman from New York's 9th District, Anthony Weiner. (laughs) When he was caught passing around pictures of himself and his underwear to various women online, he had this to say to Rachel Maddow.
13: Look, I, I, we don't know f- for sure. The f- photograph doesn't look f- familiar to me, but a lot of people who have been looking at this stuff on our behalf are cautioning me that, you know, stuff gets manipulated, stuff gets, you know, you can, you can, you can change a photograph, you can manipulate a photograph, you can doctor a photograph. And so I don't want to say with certitude it maybe didn't start out being a photograph of mine and now looks as something different or maybe it was something that was from another account. <laughs> that... What we call a terrible lie.
7: You know, underwear is kind of a funny thing. Some of us would rather be caught dead than to have pictures of us in our underwear going viral like disgraced former Congressman Anthony Weiner here. And then there are these people.
14: Dozens stripped down to their underwear and it was all caught on camera. People gathered for the annual No Pants Subway Ride on the Hudson Yards 34th Street subway station. The movement started 16 years ago. It always brings tourists to the area. With temps in the 20s, and this year was certainly one of the coldest, but hey, that didn't stop the no pants party. This is my first time. I don't know. My my friend my friend dragged me in this. She was like, you want to take pants off in the train? I was like, why not? Yeah, why not, right? Well, the event is also held in other major cities, including Boston, Sydney, Paris, and Shanghai.
7: Now, one might think it would be illegal to walk around town in your skimpies, but it turns out that there are no real laws to speak of, at least on a federal level. In Flint, Michigan, however, city law states that low-riding pants that expose underwear is a Class B offense. There are some more obscure and unenforceable laws on the books regarding underwear across the states. In San Francisco, it's illegal to wash your car with used underwear. Nothing about washing your car with new underwear, though. In Cleveland, women are forbidden from wearing shiny leather shoes just in case men see the reflections of their underwear. In Minnesota, it is technically against the law to hang male and female underwear together on the same clothesline. And that is just the United States... In Thailand, it's illegal to leave the house without any underwear on. Saudi Arabia's feared morality police won't punish men who walk around in their underwear, But women still face imprisonment if they violate strict laws on women's dress codes. But back here in the States, good luck going online or driving downtown without seeing an ad or a billboard with someone posing seductively in a pair of tight-fitting designer underwear. One underwear company in particular has made people all hot and bothered on more than one occasion over the years. Calvin Klein. You know the ads, those black and white images, extremely attractive people posing with little to nothing at all.
9: I always think of our clothes as being sensual and modern, but when you start showing the body, well, then you can have some fun.
7: And that's the man himself, Calvin Klein, an American fashion designer of Hungarian Jewish ancestry born in the Bronx, is currently worth about 720 million.
9: I've always known from the time I was, I mean, honestly, about five or six years old, exactly what I wanted to do. My mother loved clothes and she dressed us really well, and my grandmother made clothes for people. By the time it was time for high school, I knew it was going to be fashion, and then I knew I'd go on to a college that specialized in fashion as well and couldn't wait to get out into the industry.
7: Like so many other entrepreneurs we hear from on this show, young Calvin Klein didn't want anybody telling him what to do. We also get to hear
9: about his very first job. My father was a businessman and my parents discussed business all the time. I always had a sense that I would want to be the designer, but I'd want to be able to control what I was designing and not have the person who was manufacturing the product tell me what to do. My first job, The man who hired me, he said, you could have a nice 2 or $3 million business. And I thought to myself, I don't think so. Um, uh, I I think I want to do something
7: uh, bigger. Like any and every artist or musician, underwear designers like Calvin Klein must also find inspiration somewhere.
9: I was inspired by the American woman who I thought was modern, young, she wanted a career, she wanted a family, she had a family. She did all of these things, and she needed clothes that fit that lifestyle. Well, as it turned out, there were women all over the world that were doing the same American thing. Woman, stay away
4: from me
7: American woman. Back in the day, Calvin Klein found his inspiration with a young woman named Brooke Shields.
9: One of the first commercials that we did, Brooke Shields, the camera moved very slowly across her body and then comes in on her face and she says, you know what comes between me and my Calvin?"
2: You want to know what comes between me and my Calvins? Nothing. Nothing.
9: Then it was shocking. We were thrown off the air on television overnight. And next thing, front page of newspapers, full page of Brooke Shields, we got so much free publicity.
7: And that was Calvin Klein, Underwear Royalty, and you're listening to the Great American Underwear Hour. As promised, we're now going to hear from an actual underwear model. Now calm down, calm down. We all gotta be adults about this, man. Martha Hunt has been a Victoria's Secret Angel since 2015.
5: I am in crunch time right now. I'm really amping up the workouts leading up to the show. I would say
7: about three weeks leading up to the show, we really amp it up. And we'll plan, like, private sessions with one another, which is really cute. And I think it's just so empowering to be a part of a girl group that, you know, we need to work out for work, but we also can enjoy doing it together. It's always a lot of fun
3: working out with the girls.
7: Oh, well, that was a bit underwhelming. Well, now we're going to learn about how your underwear can save your life with Dr. Oz.
3: I've a lot of
13: embarrassing things in the past, but this might be my most mortifying request yet. Today, I have asked everyone in our audience to bring in a pair of their underwear. Now Dr. Oz will walk us through his underwear test, step by step. Let's begin. So question number one is, does your underwear have less elasticity than when you bought it? The answer, everybody, I want y'all doing it up there, should be no. Because stretched out elastic means your butt
7: is getting bigger.
13: Next. Question number two. Is the backside more than three inches wide? Come on, turn your underwear around. stick in there. Backside three inches wide. Everyone look in there? Right. The answer, the guys don't have to check. This is more for the women. The answer should be yes. I'm not gonna touch that one. Next. Question number three. Everyone's gonna check this out now. I want you all checking on yourselves. Is your underwear too tight? And the answer to this also should be no.
7: All right, that one's easy. Nothing tight. Got it?
13: Next. This is the final question, and for many of you, it will be the most important question and perhaps the most embarrassing one to look for. Does your underpants have any yellow stains? all
7: right. Stop. Stop. It's quite enough. Thank you, Dr. Oz. Oof. That escalated quickly. Well, I think that just about wraps up the Great American Underwear Hour. Boy, we've learned a lot about underwear today. From the humble beginnings as a loincloth in the Garden of Eden... To the Chicago World's Fair of 1935, where Jockey was born. From the top five underwear sellers on Amazon to the top of the underwear industry itself, with the story of Spanx founder Sarah Blakely, who started it all with a $5,000 investment. From the age-old question of boxers versus briefs, to underwear poetry, from bad to good, With the underwear bomber, to the priceless underwear health tips from Dr. Oz. Yellow stains. We even heard from a Victoria's Secret underwear model. Not bad. On behalf of all of us here at Our American Stories, thanks for coming along with us on this crazy and magical journey that we will forever know as the Great American Underwear Out.
0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories that touch on every part of life. And one theme that cuts across all of them is innovation. And today we're joined by Tim Harford, author of a great book entitled 50 Inventions That Shaped the Modern Economy. And we're going to dig into a few of those inventions now. Tim, let's start off with the story of the plow. You said it ultimately made our modern economy possible. How is that?
1: Well, it's a wonderful example of how technology has profound effects on society. We think about technologies as solving problems. So, with the plow, what's the problem? I want to grow crops, uh, the soil's not very fertile, I need to break up the surface of the soil, so you know, I, I invent the plow. But, of course, that's just the beginning. Uh, Then all the social changes begin. So with the case of the plough, it created uh, a surplus. It created a harvest that you could store somewhere at the the end of the year, uh, which meant uh, you had an incentive to form up in big gangs. These days we call them armies and go and take the grain in someone else's barn. Um, It meant that you could support... Uh, a uh, an elite um, people who thought uh, who planned bureaucrats accountants priests Uh, it it meant you could support cities and with cities of course comes the whole of civilization so uh, you could really say this is where the whole thing started whether whether you like it or not with the plow
0: and whether you like it or not is true because some people don't like it and lots of people do let's talk about barbed wire you say this there was a reason that American farmers were so hungry for barbed wire. A few years earlier, in 1862, President Abraham Lincoln had signed the Homestead Act. Talk about that.
1: So that act said anybody who wants to move to the, to the West, to the Midwest, and to put up a fence and to farm some land for five years... Um, men, women, freed slaves, anyone who who wants to do that, that land will be theirs at the end of a few years. So it seems like a huge opportunity. The only trouble is, when these new settlers get to the, the great American prairie, they realize there is no wood, or certainly there's not enough wood to spare putting up miles and miles of fences. And so if they want to claim land... Uh, and in particular to keep off these tough longhorn cattle from trampling all over the place. They need a source of fencing. So this is one of those situations. Sometimes people invent things and they never know what, what it's going to be used for. So the classic is the laser. The laser's invented and it's a solution looking for a problem. Complete opposite with barbed wire. Everybody knew what the problem was. It's how do we make inexpensive fencing that doesn't require a lot of wood. And there were huge efforts, lots and lots of patents for different fencing techniques emerged from the the American Midwest at the time. Lots of people trying to solve the problem. Uh, The American government issuing reports saying we need fencing material. And then about 10 years later, J.F. Glidden of DeKalb, Illinois, produces this patent for this technology. And it, it is the first recognizably modern barbed wire, where you, you have a little twist, you have two two pieces of wire together, you twist one around the other uh, in order to keep these barbs secure so they don't slide up and down the wire. And that's really barbed wire as we know it even today. And it was immediately a sensational hit. So within a few years, um, the the factories of, of Glidden and his associates were producing over 250,000 miles of barbed wire each year. Uh, but as with the plow, it, it created winners and it created losers. It completely reshaped the American landscape. And it was just one of those way, the things where the president, Abraham Lincoln, had granted people property rights, and yet those property rights are really no good unless there's some practical technology for defending the property rights. And it was barbed wire. Let's talk about Google search.
0: That's number five in your book. And by the way, we're talking to Tim Harford, his latest book, 50 Inventions That Shaped the Modern Economy. Google search.
1: Well, it would be impossible to leave it out, wouldn't it? It's I was trying to describe to my wife the other day, I was using a search engine on um, a newspaper website, and it, it wasn't working very well. Uh, and I was saying, oh, Google works so well, this search engine's so bad, I can't Google anything. So even when I was trying to describe the process of searching for something, not using Google, I was still using the verb to Google. So it's it's just... Um, it's just transformed the way that we access the Internet, uh, that we access the World Wide Web. I'm old enough to remember the world before Google and the Internet before Google. And you you would discuss strategies for how to find things. So you would say, oh, if, um, if you know, for example, that a particular person has been working on a problem and you want to find some information, if you search for their name, that might help because you – know, uh, this, it's completely useless to search for an actual phrase or a, a bit of content that's never going to work but maybe if you search for someone's name when google came along suddenly you would type stuff into the search bar and you would actually find it and that, that has been completely transformative and of course it continues to to reshape the economy because now it's become more and more local these search engines they're on our phones um you're you so you're attention is being directed you you want to search for a place to have a drink nearby um you, you've been locked out of your house you need to find a locksmith google is trying to solve these problems sometimes with great success sometimes not And enormous amounts of, info, uh, of uh, effort are devoted to where you come on that google search ranking if you're on page three of the google search ranking you're absolutely nowhere so it, it's it, it's an insight into the way that um A particular technology can unlock a whole world of information out there.
0: And you've been listening to Tim Harford, author of 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and hear all that we do as it relates to authors. And we've done a good 60 interviews with some of the best writers in this country. Everyone from David Mamet to, of course, the great David McCullough. Tim Harford, author of 50 Inventions That Shaped the Modern Economy, here on Our American Stories. continue with Our American Stories and this next story, well, it's close to our hearts because it's about radio, the golden age of American radio that lasted from the 1930s until the 1940s, when radio was the primary source for news and entertainment for a country struggling with economic depression and then war. We like to go back and listen to these old broadcasts here on Our American Stories from time to time. Here's Jesse, With the story of Tennessee Jed.
7: The Tennessee Jed radio program aired from 1945 to 1948, across the United States, and was sponsored by Tip Top Bread.
2: There he goes, Tennessee! Get him!
8: Got him! Dead center! That's Jed Sloan, Tennessee Jed, deadliest man with a rifle ever to ride the Western Plains. Brought to you every day, Monday through Friday, by the bakers of enriched tip top bread.
7: Tennessee was the deadliest man with a rifle ever to ride the plains in the days of the early West, and he was a man who upheld the law. He wandered the Western Plains with his trusty squirrel gun and horse, Smokey, setting things right and standing up for American virtue. During the capture of a big black mare as a fitting mate for his great horse, Smokey, Tennessee overhears a nefarious plot to overthrow the United States government by renewing the war between the states of the Civil War. This episode originally aired December
2: 1945. Tennessee, I figure you're heading for Sonora and Palaver with the six-gun deputy.
5: You're forgetting, son. The six-gun deputy is now Sonora's new sheriff, having replaced Mortimer Jackson.
2: Yeah. But it's going to take quite a spell to get used to calling him anything side's deputy.
5: Well, no matter what we calls him, I figure it's high time he's wised up on this here plan of starting war between the states all over again. You know, Tennessee,
2: more you think about it, more likely it seems them no-goods we heard plotting on Dead Man's Plateau can do It
5: does for a fact, son. There's a heap of unrest in Texas these here days.
2: Yeah, Tennessee. When General Kirby Smith surrendered to federal forces, lots of his Confederate boys figured they should have kept on fighting.
5: You're naming it straight, son.
2: But that's all over, Tennessee. Texas is back in the Union. And war between the states is a closed book.
5: Not to no-goods what's hungry for power, son.
2: What you mean by that, Tennessee?
5: You see, Rod Boy... There's always unrest, if an body wants to stir it up. Even this late, there's enough to make it possible for a bunch of no-goods to start war between the states all over again.
2: The way you lay it out, Tennessee, it listens like there's a good chance a government in Washington being overthrown. Listen, you can halt it.
5: And best way, I figure, Rod, is turn the forces of law and order loose against them what's plotting against the United States.
2: Meaning your first call is going to be on Sonora's new sheriff?
5: Yes, yeah, son. Because if need be, Sonora's new sheriff can get word straight through to the president. I'd better get Smokey rigged. Smokey's sure going to cut
2: quite a figure rigged out in that new saddle, Tennessee.
5: And his rider's going to feel mighty proud of setting in her Rod. Easy, Smokey feller. Easy, boy. Won't take you long to get used to your
15: rigging.
2: There.
5: Oh, look at that, Rod. I
2: know, Tennessee. Saddle skirt fits Smokey's back so snug. You don't hardly need to use a girth.
5: Girth? You mean cinch, don't you, Rod?
2: Oh, girth and cinch is same things, Tennessee. Only here in Texas, we usually says girth. <laughs> Sides light as you, ride. They's hardly needed, no matter what you call 'em. them.
5: Anyways, that's quite a saddle, boy. I'm gonna take mighty good care of her.
2: You just take care of yourself, Tennessee. If and something happens to keep you from reaching the sheriff in Sonora, plot to overthrow the
5: government just might work. Don't you worry your head about me, Rod Boy. I can promise you. I was gonna be mighty cautious. Till we puts the kibosh on this here plan to start war between the states all over again.
2: You do that, Tennessee. Cause if anything goes wrong now, United
5: States is a goner. Get up, Smokey boy. Goodbye, Tennessee. Goodbye, Rod. Come on, Smokey feller. Lay him down, boy. Lay him down.
7: And such a disaster as a revival of the war between the states must be avoided at any cost. Tennessee races towards Sonora and has trusted Smokey to meet the sheriff he hopes will avert a renewal of the war between the states. But his attention is drawn towards a suspicious-looking wagon coming his way.
5: Up ahead, Smokey Filler. There's a heavy-loaded wagon coming in this way. There's something about them two fellers in it that I don't like at all. Ease up, feller. Filler. Whoa, Smokey! Whoa, boy! Whoa! Whoa! Howdy, gents. You got freight for Circle S? This here look like a freight wagon. Well, now, wagon is resting kind of heavy on the springs, like is moving a heavy load. Stranger, you're a young man with a long life ahead of you. Providing you keep your nose out of other folks' business. Now, just a minute, gents. Cutting across Circle S property is all right, providing the reason for crossing his arms. Drive on, Pharaoh. We got no time for palavering with this, Jasper. Yeah, boss. Boss, whoa, whoa. I don't like having to cover you gents with my rifle. Oh, see here, you young weapon snapper. You keep your nose out of what's none of your business. That answer your question? Sort of, kind of, squint, but... Not to my complete you satisfaction. Going? Guns and ammunition. Enough for outfitting a small army. In all property, a United States government.
8: Now you see, Tennessee.
5: Satisfied? I like a heap of beans, Squint. Because I got me a notion these here guns and ammunition was stole from the United States government is part of a plan to renew war between the states. Is Tennessee right? Let's see if by discovering the guns and
7: ammunition, Tennessee has nipped in the bud the plot to overthrow the government.
5: These guns and ammunition I'm pretty confident were meant for taking over
6: the U.S.
5: Government. You heard, Miss Squint. And you too, Pharaoh. This here guns and ammunition has been stole from the government. What are you doing with them? That's our business, Tennessee. And none of your... If and these stole guns and ammunition is part of the plan for starting war between the states all over again, gents. I'm making it my business. Uh Oh, Now, just where'd you get such a ridiculous notion, Tennessee? Is it a ridiculous notion, Pharaoh? Get him, Pharaoh!
4: <laughs> <laughs> well,
8: nice work, Pharaoh, nice work. You know, that Tennessee turned just at the right time for your gun butt to connect just right with his skull.
5: Yes, Quint. This here hombre knows too much. Maybe so, it'd be a good idea if any never comes to.
8: There's plenty of jaspers like to be in our shoes right now, Pharaoh.
5: Yes, Quint, I'll bet there is. Because the easiest way to kill a man like Tennessee is when he's asleep, or like he is now, unconscious.
7: Well, how about that? For the first time ever, Tennessee Jed is unconscious at the mercy of two unprincipled thugs. And that's just about how every episode of the program ended, with a cliffhanger that just makes you want to hear the next episode. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards.
2: Here he goes, Tennessee! Get him! <laughs> Got him! Dead center!
8: Oh, doo-doo. Jed Sloan, Tennessee Jed. deadliest man with a rifle ever to ride the western plains. Brought to you every day, Monday through Friday, by the bakers of enriched
1: tip-top bread.
0: And I'm sitting here like all of you going, what the heck happens next? We gotta know. Old school radio. Every once in a while, we just like doing a blast from the past. American history on the airwaves. And thanks to Jesse, as always, for the stories he provides. Tennessee Jed, here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and right now, we're going to tell you the story of the show, All in the Family. According to the Wall Street Journal, in its heyday, this show was watched regularly by nearly one-third of all Americans. Before its last of nine seasons and 212 episodes, the show had delivered six of the top 50 highest-rated television programs of all time. This is the story of All in the Family.
8: From Television City in Hollywood. Boy the way Glenn Miller played. Songs that made my head parade. Guys like us we had it made. Those, Those were, were the days. Day.
3: It was doomed from the start. The social satire television show called All in the Family was seen as too abrasive and failed to pull any punches. Carol O'Connor played the blue-collar bigot Archie Bunker. The show's creator, Norman Lear, inclined O'Connor for the combination of bombast and sweetness the actor exuded on the big screen. O'Connor believed in the character, but not in the show's chances to succeed on television. Here's Rob Reiner.
7: We knew he had a good show but we figured it wouldn't last very long because it was so special, it was so different. Um, I remember Carol saying, you know,
8: we'll probably do four episodes and then we'll probably get thrown off the air because nobody's going to sit still for this.
3: When Norman Lear invited Gene Stapleton to read for the Edith role, Archie's wife, she couldn't get over the script. This on TV? I was terribly amused by it, by its reality and honesty and humor. CBS signed on for the pilot episode. O'Connor and Stapleton were joined by Sally Struthers, who played Archie's daughter, Gloria, and Rob Reiner, who played Mike Stivick, Gloria's husband. Rob had grown up surrounded by his comic genius father and his friends. Men like Mel Brooks, Sid Caesar, Dick Van Dyke. Says Rob, that was my kindergarten, and they were my teachers. Norman Lear, a friend of Rob's father, Carl, had known Rob for over a decade. There had even been one day when Lear stopped by Reiner's house that Rob made him laugh with a routine about cheating at Jack's. Noted Lear to Carl Reiner, You've got a funny kid there. Rob's father responded, Get out of here, he's not a funny kid. Years later, Carl Reiner expanded on this exchange. Oh, I knew the kid was funny. What I didn't know, until a long time later, was that he had talent. On the evening of January 12th, 1971, as soon as Hee Haw went off the air, All in the Family made its television premiere. This is what America heard at the start of the program.
9: Warning, the program you are about to see
5: is All in the Family. It seeks to throw a humorous spotlight on our frailties, prejudices, and concerns. By making them a source of laughter, we hope to show in a mature fashion
3: just how absurd they are. Here's Sally Struthers.
2: I heard that they manned all the CBS stations across the country with extra operators to take all the angry phone calls that were going to come in from people seeing the show, and it didn't happen. They got a lot of phone calls, but people were calling in and saying, What was that? Is that coming back?
3: In the weeks following All in the Family's debut... CBS initiated and financed an opinion poll. The majority of the people questioned, including minority group members, indicated that they hadn't been offended. People who saw it discussed it. And people who hadn't discussed it anyhow. Bunker gives conservatives a bad name. Stivic gives liberals a bad name, were the typical responses. Here's show creator Norman Lear.
8: The stern warning that began our show tonight was used on the first six episodes of All in the Family. Nervous CBS censors required us to warn viewers lest they be offended by the bunkers. They didn't have bothered. Hardly anyone watched. It was in the summer reruns that you found the show and it caught on. By the second season, All in the Family had become a certified
3: hit. In May of 1972, All in the Family swept the Emmy Awards. Johnny Carson dubbed the ceremonies an evening with Norman Lear. Here's a clip of Archie Bunker and his son-in-law, Mike Stivick, sparring. Oh,
8: no. Oh, no. I'm going to sue that guy. First thing in the morning, i got to get myself a
13: good Jew lawyer. <laughs> Archie, do you always have to label people? Why can't you just get a lawyer? Why does it have to be a Jewish lawyer? Because we're not going to sue a neighbor, I'm going to get a guy that's full of hate. <laughs> Just because a guy is sensitive and, and he's an intellectual and he wears glasses, you make him out a queer. I never
8: said a guy who wears glasses is a queer. A guy who wears glasses is a four-eyes, a guy who's a f- is a queer. <laughs> What's in the name, anyhow, huh? In my day, nobody went around calling themselves Chicanos, Mexican-Americans, Afro-Americans. We was all Americans. After that, if a guy was a, f- or a f-, it was his own business. <laughs>
3: Archie's a World War II veteran turned loading dock union worker from Queens, New York. In his eyes, he's no bigot. A bigot spouts mindless prejudice, whereas Archie believes that he's thought things through, that he's simply aware of the rules ordained by nature to make some people sluggish and other people cheats. Besides, to Archie, a racist would only use negative labels, while he's the first to declare that the sharpest lawyers are Jews. At his core, Archie's not prejudiced. He hates everyone. In the complete book of nerds, author Bob Stein lists Archie's wife's name as Dingbat, her nickname as Edith Bunker, and her hobby as taking abuse. Here's Archie and Edith.
8: sure, good thing, that's you all over we're always doing good, Edith the good, you never get mad at nobody you never holler at nobody, you never swear, no nothing, you're like a saint, Edith, you think it's fun living with a saint, it ain't, it ain't at all, look at this, you you don't even cheat to win, you cheat to
4: lose
8: I mean, Edith you ain't human It's a terrible thing to say. I'm just as human as you are. Prove you're just as human as me. Do something
3: rotten. Norman Lear gave Gene Stapleton the key to Edith's character, that Edith no longer hears what Archie is saying, having tuned out years ago. So it's no wonder Edith shuffles the way she does. Her gears are permanently out of whack from a lifetime of turning the other cheek
8: thank you, Mrs. Bunker. Ah, thanks, Edith. No, that's all right. I can, I can say, Mr. Davis, Edith, get
3: out of here. Here's Gene Stapleton and Carol O'Connor on the show's secret for success.
2: I feel there was a moral statement made almost every week. But you see, it, number one, it was entertainment. And it was comedy. You can reach people through comedy.
8: We were kidding uh, American Attitudes, And uh, the uh, the artistic term for that is satire.
3: Archie's son-in-law, Mike, is an atheist who renounced his own Catholic baptism long ago. Archie believes in Catholic infant baptism so much that he kidnaps Mike's son, Joey, and baptizes his grandson himself. Now,
8: this here, Lord, is my little grandson, Joe. See? Now, his parents, they don't care if he's baptized because his old man is a dopey atheist. So, we're gonna do it here while we get the chance, you know? I don't want my little grandson growing up without religion in this rotten world of yours. How no intense a friend of their lord be. We all know you did the best you could, but only six days to get it all together. Now, don't worry, Joey, because this ain't gonna make you holler, see? Like that other thing they done to you.
4: Lord,
8: this is Joseph Michael Stevick here, a Christian. Joseph Michael Stevick, I baptize thee in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now, I hope that took, Lord, because they're going to kill me when I get home. <laughs>
0: When we come back, more on the story of All in the Family here on Our American Stories. Is our American stories we continue with the story of All in the Family and by the way it was interesting that this show had it not been for the repeats in the summer and a second season would have never been the hit show it was and I think today in the current conditions you would get one shot and you'd be out so there was something about those old days and sticking with an act and an artist that really
3: allowed folks to develop let's return to the story of All in the Family Although claiming to be a Christian, Archie's God and his theology are made in Archie's image.
8: All over the world, they celebrate the birth of that baby. And everybody gets time warp and work. Now, if that ain't proof that he's the son of God, then nothing is. <laughs> and he made us all one true religion, ain't it? Christians. She named after his son, Christian. (laughs) Or Christ, for sure. I never
2: thought of
3: that. Here's Archie and Sammy Davis Jr.
8: I think that, I mean, if God had meant us to be together, he'd have put us together. Well, look what he'd done. He put you over in Africa, he put the rest of us in all the white countries. Well, you must have told him where we were because somebody came
1: and got it.
3: Archie's patriotism and American history are also made in his image.
8: That ain't the American way, buddy. No, sorry. Listen here, professor. You're the one that needs an American history lesson. You don't know nothing about Lady Liberty standing there in the harbor with her torch on high. Screaming out to all the wall of nations in of a world, send me your poor, your deadbeats, your filthy. <laughs> and all the nations sent them in here. They come swarming in like ants. Your Spanish PRs from the Calibana. Your Japs, your Chinamen, your Crouch and your heaves, and your legal hands. All of them come in here, and they're all free to live in their own separate sections. <laughs> They feel safe and they bust your head if you go in there. That's what makes America great, buddy.
3: Chicago born Mike Stivick married Archie's daughter Gloria, who works full time while her husband is enrolled in college full time. Mike is a jobless, peace marching sociology major of heavily left wing persuasion, and they both live with Archie and Edith in Queens. Mike's friends frequently seem to appreciate Gloria more than he does. Indeed, in many ways, he treats Gloria just as Archie treats Edith, with the difference that maybe he'll kiss her in the living room. Mike is of Polish descent, sports long hair and a parted Prince Valiant cut, and a mustache, which Rob Reiner grew at 24, to look old enough to get the part of Mike. You know something, Mr. Bunker? At first I thought I misjudged you. And I was right. I did misjudge you. You're a lot more ignorant than I thought. I'm say,
4: it? did
8: you hear what he called me ignorant? Well, let me tell you something. Sticks and stones may break my goal, but you are one dumb prologue.
3: The jobless Mike doesn't consider that Archie has lived firsthand a life he only reads about in sociology books.
8: Get all these ideas. Oh, from the College of Hard Knocks, sonny boy. I've been everywhere the grass grows green. I've seen everything there is to see. I know people. The reason you don't know nothing about people is you always got your big mouth open. You're never willing to listen to nobody.
2: How do you do, sir? May I have a moment of your time?
8: No.
3: (laughs) The relationship between Archie and Mike was written by Norman Lear to reflect his relationship with his own father. In fact, Lear's father also referred to Norman as dead from the neck up, an expletive which Lear has Archie hurling at Mike as early as the first episode.
8: Let me tell you something, Mr. Bunker. No, let me tell you something, Mr. Stivik. You are a meathead.
3: <laughs> what is
4: you calling A meathead,
8: dead from the neck up. Meathead. Oh,
3: what Archie would love to see, most of all, is Mike working, so... Adding insult to injury, when Mike inherits money, he decides to donate it to George McGovern's presidential campaign instead of toward repaying Archie, who has been subsidizing his lifestyle, and then pontificates that Archie doesn't do enough for his fellow man. And since Archie doesn't choose to give more of his money away, Mike advocates a socialist system that will call him nasty names and give it away on his behalf. But through all of the wincing and laughter, we also learn something. We learn how to be less hateful and bigoted towards those who are hateful and bigoted. The episode, Two's a Crowd, chronicles the events of Archie and Mike getting locked in a storeroom overnight. When escape seems futile, the two turn to sharing a bottle and a large blanket as the episode slowly turns into an incredibly honest personal look at who these two men are this episode was carol o'connor's favorite here's a clip did you ever think that that possibly your your, your father just might be wrong
8: wrong my old man don't be stupid my old man I me tell you about him he was never wrong about nothing yes he was arch i my old man used to call people the same things as your old man but i always knew he was wrong so was your old no, man. No, he was Yes, he was. He your wasn't. father was wrong. Sorry. Your father was wrong! Don't tell me my father was wrong. Let me tell you something. Your father who made you wrong? Your father? The breadwinner of the house there? The man who goes out and busts his butt to keep a root over your head? Clothes on your you back, you call your father, you wrong. Know? Hey, hey, your hey, hey, father. Your hey, father. That's the man that c- comes home bringing you candy. father's the first guy to throw a baseball to you and take you for walks in the park, holding you by the hand. My father. Hold me by the hand oh hey my father had a hand on him now I tell you he busted that hand once and he busted it on me to teach me to do good <laughs> my father he shoved me in a closet for seven hours to teach me to do good cause he loved me he loved me don't be looking at me. <laughs> yeah. Let me tell you something. You're supposed to love your father. Of course, your father loves you. But how can any man that loves you tell you anything that's wrong?
3: As Rob Reiner's father Carl remarked, a few would deny, all in the family reshaped the face of television. For years, every new sitcom on the air was either liberated by or reacting to it.
8: It's the Jeffersons, Archie. I want the Jeffersons. Oh wait a minute, hold. <laughs> you don't mean them new people that moved in down the front yeah lioness
2: oh. family they're really very nice people oh archie.
8: yeah very nice they're wonderful people they are lovely people either but they are also colored people
2: better <laughs> hold it there daddy
8: now listen little girl been around a lot of places i've done a lot of things but there's one thing archie Bunker, ain't never gonna do and that's break bread with no
3: <laughs> within a few years of its debut in 1971 all in the Family, together with its spin-offs and godchildren, The Jeffersons, Maud, Good Times, and Sanford and Son, reached 120 million Americans, more than half the nation's population. All in the Family frequently earned the accolade of national theater, and its best scripts fall not an iota short of national literature, while Archie has joined the pantheon of American folk heroes. For his portrayal of Archie Bunker, Carol O'Connor earned more awards than any other actor ever received for a single TV characterization. When the Guinness Book of World Records recognized All in the Family as commanding TV's highest advertising rates, the series became known as the Super Bowl of Sitcoms, and Archie as the most expensive racist on television. Any topical program runs the danger of quickly becoming dated. All in the family escaped that fate. So strong is the story, so real are the people, that the episodes work even when occasional references elude the audience. It is why Archie's chair, Edith's chair, and Archie's beer can occupy a place of honor on display at the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C., They are as much a part of our national heritage as Abe Lincoln's stovepipe hat and George Washington's wooden teeth. All in the Family was recorded on tape before a live audience. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories.
0: And great job on that as always, Greg. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. So many stories about our nation's past, our arts, our culture. Again, this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.